Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. We are uh, in a series, in case you're just joining us today, uh, in the Gospel of John. And we're looking at the seven signs. Uh, so he has seven signs that he sort of handpicked, put together, that, that, that actually come in the first 11 chapters of the book. Um, and so we're looking at those seven signs, which John calls them signs instead of miracles, because they point to something. Uh, they signify something beyond the miracle itself. And that is, they point to who Jesus is and what he's done. And so John is calling on others like himself who've seen these things and he wants to share them with you in in the hopes that you'll believe, that you'll trust them, that you'll have some uh, rational route to seeing these things and putting your faith in Christ. And as a result, you get life, eternal life as we've been describing. Now that sounds kind of basic and maybe simple, but we've learned through each one of the signs that this is not that easy to do. It's complicated. But I hope you understand the challenge, because it's not just for intellectual stimulation that John has put these together, Um, and we're hoping that more happens than just that your, you know, intellect is aroused. We're really challenging you to believe. That's what John wants you to do is to put your faith in Christ. So the question is, is your heart open to that? Now, you know, this series is about, you know, one side or the other you're on, whether it's belief or unbelief. And uh, if you're believing, then, you know, if you're a believer, it's very likely that your faith is assaulted all the time in our culture by rational ideas, thinking, and concepts. Um, But if you're on the unbelieving side, we've sort of challenged you to be open. Uh, John Gray says in his book, I've quoted him to you a number of times, he says, when you explore the older atheisms, and his book's on the seven uh, types of atheism, uh, when you explore the older atheisms, atheisms, you will find that some of your firmest convictions, secular or religious, are highly questionable. This is one of the things I love about him. He's an atheist, but he's very, very honest. And so uh, he says, and if this prospect disturbs you, whichever side you're on, if the prospect disturbs you, then he says, uh, what you are looking for may be freedom from thinking. And so the challenge is for you to think. That's what John wants you to do. He wants you to think, but he wants you to do more than that. He wants you to believe. So to that end, we come to the fifth sign, which is sort of embedded into the fourth sign. When I first put this series together, I created this chart. This was, you know, I don't know, sometime before the series began, it sort of looks like this. Just laid the signs out, put my initial thoughts on each one of the signs. And the fifth sign, this one here, was sort of, I wasn't, uh, I was the least pumped about this one. Can I be honest? Can a preacher say that about a passage? I don't know if a preacher can say that or not, but I was the least pumped about it. And the reason is, is because it's debated whether it's actually a sign uh, so you've got to walk through that process. Um, 
And then the second thing is, uh, it's such a stripped down version of the miracle. If you've heard this miracle before, Jesus walking on the water, you've probably heard it out of Matthew and Mark. Because Matthew and Mark, they give you such detail and they open this thing up and there's dialogue. John gives you literally nothing. He assumes familiarity with the text. He assumes familiarity with the story. So it's very sort of economical. There's reduced dialogue. There's none of the dynamics going on that you've seen in other places. So you have to wrestle with that. Um, because, let me, let, me, let me show you this way. So let me show you how it fits. So you get the feeding of the 5,000, which which we've all heard before. And then you get the explanation of the feeding afterwards. It's only John gives you a, a, this sort of long explanation of it where Jesus is called the, the bread of life. And so um, all the other gospels, right after the feeding of the 5,000, there's the, there's the walking on the water deal, except for Luke. Luke doesn't put them right next to each other, but you assume it happens right after this. John gives you this, and so embedded inside it is this stripped down version of the walking on the water. And so you're like, man, what, what is happening there, and why is it important? Maybe even more so in this text than in the other gospels, as in terms of how John uses it. Uh, because it's embedded in sort of this bigger story with even a bigger explanation, it sort of dwarfs it just a little bit. So you got to really pay attention. I want you to know that it really supplements the story, and I think it is a sign um, for us to think about. Remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, there is a profound uh, misunderstanding of who Jesus is. And this is the reason why John says, I'm going to show you the sign, and if, you, if you're not careful, the sign will throw you off, and you'll miss what you're supposed to see. Well, they miss it. And so John gives us this long explanation afterwards, but they completely miss it. And here's what we find out about humans and why it's so hard to do this, why it's not simple, is because it's very difficult to grasp the infinite. We prefer, as human beings, to grab the finite, sort of finite substitutes. Um, we're so broken and blind that we will choose bread over the bread giver. That we will make, uh, we will try to manipulate God, use him for our own ends as opposed to seeing him as an end in himself. That's very difficult for humans to do. And so what they try to do after the feeding of the 5,000, what they try to do is they try to take him by force. Do you remember that? Let's just look at this verse. Uh, they knew after they saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is a prophet. And they're thinking of Moses because Moses is the one who made the bread and all this other kind of stuff. So they're thinking of Moses and, uh, and they say this, you know, they're about to seize him and force him to be king. So what they want is another Moses. You need to understand this. This is what humans want. We want a powerful figure on the scene who can give us bread, who can solve our most, you know, obvious felt needs. And uh, we'll make him do it if we have to. 
We'll make him solve our economic problems, our political problems, social problems. Uh, Even if we have to make him do it, which they didn't really think through that concept. You want another Moses, and here's what Jesus is saying. Your problem is bigger than the one Moses solved for you in the Old Testament. Your problem is bigger, and I'm bigger than Moses. Both of those are true. I'm bigger than Moses, and your problem is bigger than just needing bread. And so this miracle gets sort of squeezed into here so that we can start sort of understand just how big he is. Uh, and sort of release the conditions that we put on God. So how do you do that? I mean, what does this story do? Well, let's lay the story out. It's a very basic story. Like I said, stripped down version of the story. You're going to find that interesting in and of itself. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And John's the only one who tells us why he immediately made them get in the boat. This is why, the miracle, this, is why this comes right after the feeding of the 5,000. John's the only one who tells us this. They're trying to make him king. He doesn't want to be made king. He's got to get out of there. He's not there to solve their political, economic, and social problems. He's there to solve a bigger problem. So he runs from that and he sends them to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Remember, this is 600 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. And it's got three mountains around it, really tall, really big. And so cold air off of that mixes with the warm air onto there and the storm can rise really easily in uh, in those waters. And so... uh, so here it, here it comes. The water's churned up as a result. Now, I want you to see that there are three sort of parts to the story. So here's the whole story, the, the stripped-down version. But there's three real big things happening on it. The first one I want you to see is the strong wind. Okay, the strong wind, and that's the, the chaos. And then I want you to see, then Jesus comes walking on the sea. That's the supernatural element in the story. All right, and then at the end, they're immediately on land, somehow. Okay, without any explanation. All of that's missing from here. And so you get these sort of three pieces to the story. You get the chaos, you get the supernatural piece, and you get the shore. What I want to do just real quickly is sort of unpack that for us so that we can uh, apply it. So let's start with the chaos. Uh, The sea is the biblical image for evil, hostile powers toward God, all through the Old Testament and New Testament. Because it's just ominous, dark, deep, and overwhelming. Uh, there's, there's no refuge on the sea. There's nowhere to go, no, nothing you can do. It's just overwhelming. Um, so that's the picture. It's an existential reality all of us face. It's just chaos. That's what the sea, sort of in this storm image, says, and it just talks about the sheer, not only evil, but the, our helplessness in it. So it's this harsh, terrible reality that believers and unbelievers alike share. Whether you believe or you, you don't believe, you're in the middle of that chaos. You're rowing just like everybody else. Now, for unbelievers, uh, materialists or naturalists, 
Maybe you're an atheist and maybe you cling to this as a material world, natural world. Uh, this is all there is, is the chaos. Uh, there's no hope, there's no meaning, there's no ultimate sense of purpose after it. Uh, nature's a powerful force and it, at the end it wins. And so modern atheists, you know, like Dawkins and these other fellows, uh, refer to accepting that reality as a sort of bravery. You just stand up in that boat and you look out at the chaos around you and you just say, yeah, I'm just going to take it like a man or woman, whoever. Um, You're going to just embrace the meaninglessness Admit there's no sure, there's no purpose. You came here without purpose, and you're going out the same way. Now, we've learned throughout this series, this is, that's very tough to live with. And uh, this terrible reality that we have to face, seems, it, it seems to go against some of the longings we have. And it goes against our senses. We fight meaninglessness. It's just too much to bear. But that's what you got. That's all you have, if that's all you have. So the second part of this is, is there a supernatural piece to this? Which, of course, John is presenting Jesus as as the one. From from God. And here's the idea. There's no, there's no refuge unless it comes from outside of you and from outside the world. Nothing inside the chaos can save the chaos. Something's got to come from outside. And here comes Jesus. Walking on the water. We need something Beyond something bigger, something transcendent, something absolute to deal with the meaninglessness of the chaos. Unless something sort of uh, protrudes from the outside, we just, you just can't find it. Uh, and so here he comes walking on the water and this line where he's approaching the boat. And they're fearful. And there's, in all the stories that's told about the walking on the water, they're always more afraid after they see Jesus than they were in the storm before they saw Jesus. Okay, which is um, quite understandable because the whole point of this story sort of stuck in here is he's actually, a, he's, he's actually more powerful than the storm and you can't manage him. That's sort of the idea. And uh, so in the Old Testament, uh, only one person can traverse the seas. He's either, God is either seen as walking on the sea or trampling on it. And if he's trampling on it, and if he's pouncing on it, he's coming in judgment. And so uh, they're recognizing there's something more overwhelming than the storm. Uh, and Jesus is sort of breaking down their barriers. He's, he's breaking down the empirical barriers and opening up the possibility of this supernatural reality that does bring an absolute and meaning to the chaos. And in the Old Testament, 
This is a really interesting picture because John is trying to, trying to really is a power. And here's what he says. This is in Psalm 77, which is probably the background to the storm story. Um, and the psalm is, we're going to look at the psalm a little bit more at the end, but notice what he says about it because he's contemplating the Red Sea crossing. And he says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The deep never trembles. The deep is this ominous, dark, evil, no one can overcome it sort of thing. Uh, but notice this. There's a, a storm seems to arise within the storm. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed. And so now he's personalizing this storm. Uh, there's the clouds and the lightning. He says, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled. The earthquake, lightnings, clouds, this, uh, thunder. That's all images in the Old Testament of what happens when God is on the scene. And what's beautiful about this image is it pictures God as a bigger storm than the chaos it is. So here comes this storm on the storm. And you could see why John is pulling this in right here. Because notice what happens in this story, which is different than the other stories in the Gospels. This is such a great, um, see if I can find that. They wanted to take him in the boat. In this Gospel, they don't get him in the boat. They wanted to. It's, a, uh, it's an imperfect verb. It's suggesting desire, wishful desire. It doesn't happen. In fact, there's not even time because immediately they're at shore. So they want to take him in the boat and they can't. And John doesn't let him in the boat. Now this whole struggle that you're seeing is they're just struggling to do it. And they realize that they couldn't manage the storm before Jesus came and now they can't manage him either. You see, they can't, they can't help him. And so it's just, it's John saying, Jesus comes on his terms. You can't use him, you can't manipulate him, you can't help him. You don't lend God a hand. That's what he said. It's bigger than that. They're attempting to grasp the infinite. And they can't. And I said last week, do you really want a God you can grasp? Do you really want a God who never disagrees with you? That you're smarter than? Do you want a God like that? Because that's how we approach God. That's the arrogance in, hum- in humans. Oh God, no, we really know our own needs. We really know what we really need. We really even know how you can solve those needs. And we'll come to you if. And here's John saying, oh no, 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 no. I know he made a little bread for you and you're all happy about that. And you think you got a bread maker now. A Burger King on the side, on, on the Sea of Galilee. No, no, you don't. Uh, so immediately they're on the shore. And this is such a, a beautiful scene because this is not how it's presented in the other Gospels. You know, Jesus is in the boat. He's either sleeping in the boat in one of the stories or he's... Uh, gets in the boat and the storm calms. The storm doesn't calm. It's just all of a sudden they're on the shore. 
There's just no explanation. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation. The disciples aren't speaking and they're helpless. It's as if gospel is, John is saying, your, your only hope, your only sure footing, your only hope is if someone breaks into the chaos. Otherwise, there's no shore to swim to. You just struggle in the chaos. That's not how it is here. So, at the end of the day, you either, you, you have a choice here. You have a choice here. You can just live with this. It's just chaos. We're going to do the best we can and then it'll be over. The strong survive. Suck it up. Or there's a whole other thing and there's, there's a whole supernatural piece to it and then there really is actual footing. Which by the way, all of us would kind of want this even if we are brave and are trying to act like there is no God and there's no supernatural and there's no hope and there's no meaning. We're doing the best we can. Uh, there's still many times in life like we've said before where it will <laughs> it'll just come on you that you wish there was a shore. And so uh, you live either with the meaninglessness or you live with the mystery. This is just too much for some. That's just too mystical. I can't wrap my arms around it. I mean, I can't bring them in the boat. If I can't bring them in the boat, then, then I don't want anything to do with it. It's just too much. It's outside of my realm. Take, the, uh, take for instance, the, the, the problem of evil. Because a lot of people will look at the chaos in the world that represents evil and they'll say, if there's evil in the world, then there cannot be a God. If evil exists, God cannot exist. Because certainly if God were good and he were powerful, he wouldn't allow evil. That's our, that's our rational thinking. Now you need to understand the philosophical undertones of that. And I want you to see them. I'm going to explain them a little bit different than I did in the first service. In the first service, they almost left. Uh, we didn't have a great, it wasn't a great experience. And, if you, and, and this is just the truth. If you don't read a lot of philosophy, then it's hard to understand some of the philosophical stuff. And, and I mean, I'm learning it myself. I'm, not, I'm no philosopher either. I read enough of it where I can at least interact with it a little bit. If you're just hearing it in a talk, it's really hard to take. But I want you to understand something. I want to see if I can get to the bottom of this. I'm challenging myself to say it better than I said it in the first service. Um, so philosophers have identified the flaw in the whole, uh, in the reasoning that says, well, since evil exists, God cannot exist. Okay, they've identified the flaw. There's a hidden premise in that. The hidden premise basically is this. If I cannot think of a good reason why evil exists, okay, if I can't think of a good reason why evil exists, then God cannot possibly exist. So here's what you're trusting in, your own rational, cognitive ability. My question to you is, can you trust that? See, philosophers are poking holes in just that thought. Let's go back to the idea that you think you're smart enough and that somehow if, how arrogant, if you can't come up with a reason for evil, then you just outright declare God exists. You've thought about it enough, you can't come up with a good reason 
He can't exist. I want you to think about something because Darwin, evolutionary biology, here's what he said. And, and philosophers are seeing this. The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. If we came from nothing, on what basis can you trust your own rational thinking? You can't put trust in that. But that's what you're doing. Well, God, maybe, certainly you're not so smart or bigger than me that you could come up with a reason that I can't think of. And since I can't think of one, you don't exist. Do you see the arrogance in it? And the philosophical uh, illogic or lack of logic. There's no way to base, there's no way to be true. Now, um, there's so many things I'd love to say to you about this, but here's what um, one writer says. If reason, my own cognitive faculty, is a product of natural selection, then how much confidence can we have in a rational argument for natural selection? Do you see that? The power of reason is owed to the independence of reason. Hear that again. The power of reason is owed to the independence of reason and to nothing else. Evolutionary biology cannot invoke the power of reason even as it tries to destroy it. That's the point. Even your own rational thinking, if you deny that they're supernatural, is chaotic and there's no way you can trust it. I guess that's the simplest way I can put it. Does that make a little sense? Is that a little bit? You're the smarter group than the first. I know you're smarter than the first service. And so at the end of the day, if there is no sure, then there's nothing firm, and that includes your rational thinking. There's no ultimate basis for which to assess evil. It's just all evil. And there's no explanation as to why you're outraged by it. Are you outraged by evil? Does injustice bother you? I'm just saying without the supernatural, there's no ultimate basis for any of the rest of it. So the question becomes, can I live with the, can I live with the meaninglessness of that? Or do I prefer to live with the mystery? That it's possible that God knows more than I know. What's more likely? That it really is meaningless? Or that it's very possible he's so big I can't grasp everything he's doing? And I will tell you, it's very difficult in our modern society. It's very difficult. In fact, it's, it's one writer said that I was reading said it's, a, it's an unpardonable sin to imagine that human beings aren't smart enough to figure certain things out. And human beings have a really hard time with what they don't fully understand. And they can be arrogant. So the question becomes, well, what seems more likely if there is a God The Bible says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Shouldn't we expect mystery? 
Should you always be able to pull him in the boat and figure it all out and help him out with the issues of the world? Or would you expect that he's bigger and that you might not fully get it all? I've been reading to you a little bit out of uh, Enduring Divine Absence by Joseph Minnick, and he writes this in there, and I, 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 was, I worshipped as a result of reading it. He said of God, he sustains the entire cosmos in his being. He donates life to creation. Truly, we can't comprehend his vastness. The oceans are but a drop in his palm. The king's heart is in his hand. He rides on the storm. He controls the seas. Life and death are in his hands. He's unimaginable. Simultaneously, the highest object of human reflection. And, I love this, the rock bottom infinite concrete against whom human reflection smashes into pieces. My best thoughts smash into pieces when I contemplate him. Jesus is giving them a picture of that. You will not take this God by force. This is a bigger storm than you've ever tried to imagine. You don't handle God. Now, I'm going to apply that two ways and we'll be done. I'm going to apply it, first of all, for sake of argument, to a person in here who is not a believer. I'm just going to get right down to the heart of the issue of what John is presenting in his book anyway about Jesus and sort of come at it from that perspective. And I'm going to take two Old Testament passages that probably are in the background of this storm story to do it. Very quickly. The first one has to do with uh, Job chapter 9. And I'm going to talk to you who... um, Unbelieving. These both cross over, by the way. But I just, for the moment... To the person who's not willing really to see uh, God in Jesus. So we're going to go to Job chapter 9. And uh, Job's going to use this phrase. He trampled over the seas. That means God's coming in judgment. And so for a moment, if there's a supernatural and Job realizes that at some point he's got to stand before this God and give an account for his life. And at the beginning of the psalm, or, or the beginning of this Job chapter 9, he, he says, truly I know that it is so. I mean, Job already knows the answer to the question, but he's already going he's been going ahead and ask it anyway. How can a man be right before God? Is it possible to present myself righteous before God, present myself in a way to God that he has literally no choice but to accept me. You go, well, on the basis of that, you're in. Okay? Job already knows the answer to this question and the, and the essence of the answer that the rest of the Psalms is, is there's no way. It's impossible. And so he says, if one wished to contend with him, because Job's presenting Job, Job chapter 9 and 10, or courtroom scene. The courtroom scene is all through this. There's legal implications all the way through. Um, so if I'm going to go to court with God, we're going to contend, can I, I? One could not answer him once in a thousand times. He's too wise and too mighty. 
And then he asked this question, who has hardened himself against God and won? Has anybody? It's, it's impossible. That's what he's trying to say. And then he'll go in, then he describes, um, he uses the Red Sea as an illustration and God trampling on the sea. There's no way to deal with that. That's, that's the storm on the storm. He's too big. So uh, he sees him as this creator over all of the creation, all of whose movements are way beyond me. He does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. He passes by me and I don't see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away or he just walks away. When God walks away, does anybody say, hey, 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 get back here? Anybody say that? No. Uh, who will say to him, what are you doing? What? You know how you say it to your kids? Have you ever said that to your kids? Uh, what are you doing? You think you can say that to God? <laughs> Too marvelous. That's Job's thing. So here's what Job is essentially getting at, which is the same thing Romans teaches to the person uh, who, um, you say, so what is Job trying to say? And I'm going to say it to you this way, and I can really talk about this forever, but Romans says, when you get before God and you think you have a case, here's, the, here's, here's my real point. The point is, is for the unbeliever, this is it. Uh, you come before God, and I just want to say, uh, I could talk about this every Sunday, and it seems to, to resonate, and that is, somehow you think that you'll stand before God one day and you'll be good enough. That you'll be able to present a case to him that you're a good person and you'll be okay before him and he'll be forced. You'll be able to use that to force God's hand to accept you. And, you know, Roman says, I don't think you understand. When people get before God, He's so big, all mouths stop moving. There's no discussion to be had. You can't get the words out. Your guilt before his holiness is so overwhelming, you can't, you can't deal with it. There's no words, there's no argument can come from it once you're in his presence. And so the whole idea here is, the whole essence is, quit bargaining with God. He's too big. And some of you are imagining that you, you do have a case. There was a gal who used to come to this church. She was an atheist. And she told me her story, how she came to Christ, the struggle from, the, from childhood on. She struggled. Even though she came to a belief that God didn't exist, she still was seeking him in her life. And I'll never forget, this is about six years ago. She wrote to me emails and we had great conversation and she even shared in here because she eventually gave her life to Christ. But what, was, what really became difficult for her was imagining that she wasn't good enough. She started to realize that God, I think I can present a case before God that I'm morally a good person. And it took a little while, but what really changed her was she came to the conclusion that there's too much chaos in herself, too much evil in her. And she realized, she started to notice it. And her husband used to work for this prison. And he'd get letters from the inmates. And she sent one of them, or she explained one of those letters to me in this email that I've kept. She says, uh, 
No matter how hard I tried, I fell into sinful thoughts and behavior. Even the most basic commandments I realized I couldn't keep. I couldn't love at all times. I couldn't honor parents at all times. I, I, I experienced anger and pride. And she said, one of the things that really pushed her over the edge in understanding how she was sort of trying to find good to justify herself was a letter that came from one of these inmates to her husband to their home. And this is what the man said in the letter. I've made some mistakes, but overall I'm a good person. And she says, you know what his mistakes were, Pete? He raped and killed 16 prostitutes. But even this man could just somehow look somewhere in his life. He was compelled to find something good. Surely someone has killed 17 and I'm better than him. It's in us to do it. And here's what you need to know. And here's what's so difficult. Can you walk away from any good you've ever done? And stand before God. In other words, Row as hard as you want. Navigate as hard as you want the chaos. Your own chaos. I hope you see your own chaos. I hope we don't just perceive the chaos out there. We need Jesus to come in. And this is what he did. He came into the storm. He came into our sin chaotic storm. Because we couldn't do it ourselves. That's what the cross is. He, he encounters the storm for us. And this is how we know that God is good. This is how we know. There's no other religion, no other God is ever said to have entered the storm. They don't come in the storm. They're all scared of the storm. He came into the storm and did what we could not do for ourselves. So not only is he this uncontrollable force it's an untamable love say what you want about evil say what you want about the existence of evil you can't say God doesn't care because the cross won't let you it just won't let you look what at the end of this text, I got to read this to you because here's what he says uh, in Job 9. He says, if, if I do get before God, which I know I won't, but if I do get my, my day in court, he says, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Why do I kill myself to pull off what cannot be pulled off? He said, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, which is, is this, like the strongest detergent available they had at the time, you still, you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. I will be so filthy before your eyes, my own clothes won't stay on my body. That's the truth of who I am. That's hard to see. But I could say it every Sunday and you'll walk out of here and somewhere in the recesses of your mind, you'll think it. I think I could convince God. And you've, he's too big, too holy. Finally, to the believer who is 
Maybe you're in a storm right now. Uh, we've all been in storms. Uh, but some of you might be in one now, and it's an overwhelming one. And, you know, I told you in the mornings, when I wake up, it just seems like God just presses on me. It's like a weight of the storms that people in this church are in. And I've been in storms, but I, I, can't even, I can't even imagine some of the storms that are happening right now in the lives of people in this church. And you cry out, you know, you agonize, why? I say it for you, I say it for you. Why, God? And I say, God, I hope, where are you in that? How long is this gonna last? This is what we agonize, whenever we're in a storm, that's what we do. In Psalm 77, which pictures God as the storm in the storm, David is going through that. That's why he pictures it. Because he's in a storm, and he's so frustrated, he can't sleep, all he can do is moan, He said his soul is inconsolable. Can't speak or sleep. And you realize sometimes God doesn't still the storm. And he didn't still it in here. But he's right there taking you to shore. And you'll never reach shore without him. There's not even hope of a shore without him. I've said it many times before, you can suffer with God or you can suffer without him. We're all gonna do it. And so in Psalm 77, here's what he writes, and it's just, this is what David says after he considers the storm on the storm. He says, your way is through the sea. (laughs) Nobody knows chaos better than you. Your path is through the great waters, but yet your footprints are unseen. You're definitely powerful. You're definitely in control. But, but many of your ways and purposes, we just can't wrap our heads around. There's a mystery to them. You're, you're too big. It's not meaningless. It's mysterious. But there is a shore. And sometimes you've got to ponder the trackless, tracks of God because he doesn't leave them but appearances can be deceptive and at the end of this psalm this last verse says you led your people through the sea like a flock and yet they could never detect your footprints once somehow you did it when they were hurting in the Old Testament. They look to the parting of the Red Sea for hope. We don't look to the Red Sea. It doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to us. We look to the cross. The cross is where God went. Not only to absorb evil and deal with it, but to bring meaning to pain. In other words, the cross is again the answer. that he understands our pain and that he stands by us in it. Say what you want about the storm. It isn't because God doesn't care. I love this little phrase in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He says, uh, 
Mr. Hopeful, you know, there's these characters, they're all heading toward heaven. There's the believer, the unbeliever, there's Mr. Hopeful, there's Mr. Hopeful. Everybody has a Mr. Hopeful in their life. The guy's always smiling. You want to slap that guy. You know that guy? So Mr. Hopeful's in the story too, you know, and, and Mr. Hopeful. Uh, and they're going through the hardest times, right? Pilgrim, who's going, he's the hardest, going through the hardest time. And here's what Mr. Hopeful says to him, and I love it. It's just, it's never left me years. He says, be of good cheer, my brother, for I feel the bottom and it is sound. Isn't that great? I feel the bottom and it's sound. You get that low that you feel the bottom and man, you really hope that it can hold you. That's who God is in the storm. And if you're in one, he'll get you to the shore. And it's your only hope of, he'll get you to the shore. He might not still the storm. He'll go through it with you. And if you're in that, you need to know you're in our prayers and that he's sovereign over the storm. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, we come before you and we think about this text and we realize how many ways in our lives we, we try to use you or think we can somehow trick you. Uh, into doing things we want done. We rationalize how the world works and then we try to fit you into that and there's just no way to do that. It just doesn't work and John is showing us that and it's so utterly humbling. It's just ridiculously humbling. But we are here doing our best to recognize who you are and what you've done for us. And by coming into this chaos, you have changed the entire landscape of how we think and operate. And it's not surprising that a God like you would do it in ways that we can't fathom, that you would actually have a salvation we can't achieve. Only you can. Only you could create that that we could go through storms and know you're with us and the only hope of getting ashore is through you. That's Only you can do that even though we can't understand much of what's happening. But we give ourselves to you. We trust you. We know that you love us and that becomes the bottom that's sound. The sound bottom, Lord, is that you care and the cross confirms that. I pray, Lord, these things in your son's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.